This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Insiders Back to You. I'm David Spears and we have so many great questions from you all this week and they're all about one issue. You guessed it. The mystery of Scott Morrison's multiple ministries. Now, we do now know that the then Prime Minister was also secretly Minister for Health, Finance, Industry, Science, Energy and Resources, Home Affairs and Treasury. It's quite a business card. And to answer your questions about it all this week, I'm joined by the ABC's Melissa Clark in Canberra and Rebecca Levingston, host of Mornings on ABC Brisbane. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you, David. I'd also like to be a Chief Caffeine Officer, if we're taking on additional <laughs> like, responsibilities, can, please. Exactly. You can assume uh, that role without the Governor-General's uh, say-so. I'm, I'm sure of that. Look, and I, I know you have to scoot to record an interview with uh, John Howard. So we're going to make, we're going to get through as many questions as we can before you go and talk to a former PM who didn't uh, sign himself or have himself signed into any other roles, at least that we know of. Um, look, yeah. we've got some, we've got some difficult questions, which we'll get to. I want to start with perhaps the easy ones or the straightforward ones anyway. And a few people have asked this question. We've got a question from uh, Nin Liu Muk. Uh, from Candy and from Nicholas. They're all asking essentially the same thing. Did Scott Morrison get any extra money, any extra salary for all these additional roles that he'd uh, secretly taken on? Um, The simple answer to that is no. Um, Mel, that's been fairly comprehensively answered from both Scott Morrison and the current government. Yeah, Scott Morrison had said from the outset that there was no additional remuneration involved in any of these extra positions. And that was seemed to be pretty quickly confirmed by Anthony Albanese after that first blush glance of what had gone on here, presumably at the point where he spoke to the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and said, what the? And Mm -hmm. what is going on? It seems, at least in that initial search, they were able to confirm pretty quickly that there wasn't any extra payment involved. And look, that at least is one thing that is very easy to discover. It's not hard to trace financial movements. So if he had been paid, it wouldn't have taken long for the current government to figure that out and and they haven't found anything. So I think we can unequivocally answer that one and say, no, he did not get extra money. It does go back to the, the the why question, right? And a lot of people are cynically, you know, uh, asking that question: was it was it because of extra money? Uh, it wasn't, but it it does leave that motivation uh, question here lingering. And I'm sure that's been discussed on your program all week as well. Why did he do it? Yeah, it was kind of split though. But just on the money thing, once people know that he wasn't paid anything extra, it was kind of like, huh. Oh, well, all right then. It was just a power grab. And right. depending on how much you think about politics and democracy in this country, that was sort of the, the spectrum of uh, rage or apathy in response. So like, I had a bunch of people saying, this is a pointless conversation. Get over it. Move on. Mm-hmm. Why are you focusing on the former prime minister? Um, you know, but pe- people from, you know, southeast Queensland across to Stradbroke Island, John, who's on Minjerabar, says, I've got one word for you, Beck, megalomaniac. <laughs> Thankfully, Albo won the election. But then a lot of people took it very seriously as well. Cathy, who sent me a message saying, I do care very much whether or not the democracy I thought I was living in is being trashed by the former prime minister. So for some people, this was a really shaky episode in our political history. Yeah, well, I mean, it does go to one of the fundamentals, doesn't it, Mel? I mean, it's it's about 
knowing, not just the parliament, but the voters, the electorate knowing, who is responsible, who is accountable for decisions being made. And we certainly know, at least in, in the one example where he did make a decision on a gas project, um, that, that he was the decision maker. And yet it wasn't made very clear to us that he was the decision maker. It's important uh, in the Westminster system to have that accountability so everybody knows who's actually making decisions. I find this really fascinating because I understand that a lot of people might think, what's the big deal here? But I find that phrase of, oh, it's just a power grab, really fascinating because in some ways I'd be less concerned if it was about the money because that's a really clear motivation for someone to do something and it might be wrong, but it's very easy to understand. Uh, someone doing it for the power is much more concerning from my point of view because you don't know what they might do with that power. And we have in the, the final grasping of extra power in this resources portfolio, as you say, this clear example of one situation where Scott Morrison did use his power to make a decision to knock back uh, the development of, of PEP 11. Now, this is really interesting because it shows us precisely why the power grab does matter. The power that a minister has, particularly in the resources portfolio, to determine that a, a development project go ahead or not, or in the environment minister that something is approved or not. These are incredibly consequential decisions. And the idea that we might not be really clear about who is making them and on what basis, that for me is why it's worth so much of our, our time and interrogation to try and get to the bottom of, even though I understand for some people it, it probably sounds a little amorphous and curious. Well, yeah, just quickly, the reasons he gave, Scott Morrison gave, as to why he did this, and that, that has been the big question, one was pretty easy to, um, you know, to, to dismiss. That was the idea that a minister might be incapacitated by COVID, so I needed to be secretly sworn in in the background just in case. I mean, we've had plenty of examples over the years of ministers getting knocked over by illness, uh, even dying. Uh, we had a prime minister who disappeared altogether, <laughs> Harold Holt. We can, you know, it, you can immediately appoint an acting minister or an acting prime minister. He could have appointed himself acting minister on the spot. That's that's not a problem. The other reason he gave was, and, and Mel, you touch on this, the unilateral decision-making powers these particular ministers have in health, sweeping powers uh, during a biosecurity emergency, finance, you can dole out billions of dollars, home affairs, you can cancel a visa, treasury, you can block a foreign investment, resources, you can, you can approve or block a big project. Um, he was worried, and these were his words, that an individual, one of these ministers, might have made a decision against the national interest. Now, what on earth he's you know, sitting in cabinet with people who he's worried might not act in the national interest for is is, is puzzling. Um, normally, you wouldn't have ministers in your cabinet who you worried might not act in the national interest. But it it comes back to power. He wanted that ultimate power to step in and override them if he felt they were going to make the wrong call. That's why there's been so much anger amongst those those former ministers uh, uh, once they found out about this. There's three reasons here. And none of them really stack up. You mentioned the first one, the idea that a minister might become incapacitated. That sounds reasonable on a prima facie case. But we had Peter Dutton um, go into hospital in the very early days of the COVID pandemic. That might be the one scenario where we say, hey, this is the event that Prime Minister Scott Morrison gave as the rationale for needing to have these powers. Yet at that time, 
didn't take the powers of Peter Dutton's portfolio. So no, he didn't have the same powers as the health minister, but it does seem to undercut that first reason. The second reason that you've uh, outlined so clearly, David, the idea that he's not trusting his cabinet colleagues is really concerning from the point of view in that our parliamentary system is set up for government to rule and for cabinet to rule, mm. not for prime minister to rule. We don't have a presidential system. Power is not meant to be invested in the prime minister. It's meant to be invested in the executive government. That's why we have a parliamentary democracy, not a presidential system like the US. So I think that's a really mm. key part of this. And the third one, which I, I just want to draw attention to, uh, Scott Morrison gave it as one of the reasons for why he did this, was he talked at length about the press that he felt he was under. There was a clear expectation established in the public's mind, certainly in the media's mind, and absolutely certainly in the mind of the opposition, as I would walk into question time every day, that I as Prime Minister was responsible pretty much for every single thing that was going on. Every drop of rain, every strain of the virus, everything that occurred over that period of time. And that he felt all of that centred on his shoulders, therefore he wanted the power in his hands. And I don't think we've really interrogated that enough because if he is feeling the pressure and not being able to share that burden with Cabinet or not being able to handle that pressure with the power and circumstances that surround him, maybe he needed to think about whether he was the right person in the job at that point. It also makes you think about other scenarios where the Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was under intense pressure in unprecedented times. And in actually, it was one of my listeners on ABC Radio Brisbane who came up with um, a good question along those lines, which I put to Luke Howarth. Uh, he's the member for Petrie. He was an assistant minister in the Morrison government. I'll give give you a sense of uh, an awkward moment on ABC Radio Brisbane this week. So let me give the final question to you from one of our listeners. Jeff at Strathpine says, what portfolios did Scott Morrison take over when the bushfires were on? Well, I think the Prime Minister led strongly during that time. It was a very wobbly justification. Yeah, awkward silence um, there. No, yeah. indeed, indeed. And the other thing on trust, um, which is, goes to the heart of the concerns of, I think, of a lot of people, trust in governments, trust in prime ministers, it puts Scott Morrison's comments um, in uh, the church a couple of weeks ago saying, don't trust in governments. It was, that was the other thing that a lot of people picked up on and said, yeah, mm. you were saying that because we couldn't trust you. We've got uh, some questions too about what happens now. Um, where does this go? Matthew asks, uh, I've heard the Greens are seeking an investigation into, into the Privileges Committee. What does that involve, he asks, and would Scott Morrison be compelled to answer questions and should the government hold a short Royal Commission to uh, recommend reform here? And uh, Matthew also asks, can the Governor-General take part in a Royal Commission that he's established? Um, just to unpack that, so the, the, the Greens have asked the Speaker of the House to refer this to the Privileges Committee. I think some independents are keen on that too. They'd need the government's numbers really for that to happen. And I think the government, um, the Albanese government, still weighing up what's the best form of further investigation or inquiry into this. Will it be the Privileges Committee or something broader? If it goes to the Privileges Committee, they can look at whether Scott Morrison is in contempt of Parliament 
and then the most likely sanction would be he's, he's censured by the parliament. Yes, there are some stronger powers, I think, once, 50-plus years ago, maybe 60 years ago. 1950s, I think. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're jailed. We're, we're jailed. The two men were taken straight to jail from the floor of Parliament, but not before Frank Brown called Prime Minister Menzies one of the most vindictive men in the country and lashed out at Parliament for taking the right of punishment into its own hands. Oh, look, I don't think that's... An, no, I can't, <laughs> I can't see that, that happening this time. I, I think censure is, is what they might might be willing to consider yeah. if their investigation led them to that point. But well, there's a lot of water to yeah. go under the bridge before then. Yeah, it may well go to the Privileges Committee, but I think a separate inquiry would look at whether we need to change, fix this gap, right, that means you can be signed up as a minister without anyone knowing. I think it's pretty clear everyone agrees it should be made public, right, when someone is sworn in as a <laughs> as a minister. So if that needs to be fixed up, clarified in law somehow, uh, I reckon there'd be a pretty strong consensus um, for, for, for that to happen. Now, whether that needs to be a royal commission uh, to, to get to the bottom of that, I don't know if we'd need to go that far. Um, uh, Beck, what, what, what do you think? Well, um, on the question of whether there's any responsibility here for the Governor-General to take, I did ask David Littleproud that, uh, the leader of the Nationals. Here's what he said. Uh, I think uh, the Governor-General has been forced into a position uh, that is uncomfortable for him, but one in which he had uh, no other option other than to stick to the Constitution and the rules in which he is there to administer. Uh, I don't think the Governor-General has done anything wrong. He was put in a predicament by Mr Morrison, and that's unfortunate, but it's not the, the Governor-General's fault, and he, in my mind, has done nothing wrong. So that was David Littleproud, but to me, that mm. was a contradictory set of observations. He was forced into doing something he was uncomfortable with. He had no other option, but maybe you know this answer, David Spears. Bob Carr said, well, why did nobody in Government House demand these appointments be published in the Government Gazette? What's that? And that's a good point too. We've got a lot of questions, in fact, about the role of the Governor-General uh, for this podcast. Um, you know, Peter, why did the Governor-General not tell anyone? Joe, uh, you know, does this reflect poorly on the Governor-General? Surely there must be some level of complicity. Paul asks, uh, we just want to know why there isn't more scrutiny and pressure on the Governor-General uh, in all of this. Uh, and on and on. Lots of questions about the role of the Governor-General here. Um Look, I have some sympathy for what David Littleproud is saying there. The Governor-General needs to follow the advice of the government of the day. Once they start not doing that, uh, you know, even on a matter like this, it does become problematic. And that's why I agree with the line that this put the Governor-General in a difficult position and no Prime Minister should be putting the Governor-General in a difficult position. We don't really know whether there was any pushback from uh, David Hurley at these um, moves by the Prime Minister, uh, whether you know th there was any sort of conversation uh, and, and suggestion that this be made public, we don't know. We know, Mel, that he did put out a statement this week saying um, he had no reason to believe that they would be kept uh, private. But look, the, the fact that he uh, you know secretly signed him up in 2020 and then a year later there still had been nothing made public about this, that would seem to be a bit of a reason, wouldn't it, to suggest um, they weren't being communicated to anyone? It's certainly, and that, that was the second statement we got from the Governor-General about this. Look, I think to assess this about the Governor-General's role and did he do the right thing, should there be more scrutiny, you're right, we need to look at, at the principles here. The Governor-General, as you say, acts on the advice of the government of the day, and that's because we have rule by Parliament, not by the Crown. Mm. So at the moment he's not acting on advice of the government of the day. 
we go back to being a monarchy rather than a, a parliamentary democracy. So it is right that he takes the advice of the government of the day. The Governor-General can counsel is the phrase that's usually used. That can mean warn, ask questions, seek information to make sure that the what he's being advised from the government of the day is constitutional, appropriate, democratic, all the rest. And as you say, we don't know what conversations they had and we will probably have to wait a very long time to, to find them out. Mm. So the Governor-General's explanation was... He, he did what he was required to do, which is sign the paperwork that was presented to him. Uh, the documents are managed by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, not the Governor-General. Therefore, he thought it would be communicated. His statement, as you referred to, said that um, he had no reason to believe that the appointments would not be communicated, um, was how he phrased it. So that suggests that he, he wasn't aware or wasn't a party to this idea or didn't endorse. Even though nothing had been communicated for a year. Even though this has happened at least twice. Yeah. <laughs> so so the so I think the case being put against the Governor-General's actions is that he had at least on the second time around seen that that hadn't happened, that he would have been in a position to insist that they either be published or if the Prime Minister wasn't willing to do so, could have updated his own um, public diary, which effectively he publicises the people that he meets with, the events that he has on a daily basis. He could have at very least updated his, uh, what is a, a public diary to note that he had um, spoken to the Prime Minister about uh, ministerial arrangements, which would have been a way to make sure that this is made public. Yep, yep that being a key democratic principle. So there are certainly those that argue he he had the capacity to do more and he didn't. And I think part of the reason he's coming under so much scrutiny is because there's been a couple of other scenarios where his judgment has been, shall we say, a little bit lacking. Uh, it wasn't that long ago he was doing a, a promotional video for the company that did renovations to his home. There's been questions yeah, about right. how much he lobbied uh, the Prime Minister to ensure funding went to a, a group around a leadership training that was all a lot of money to a group with not much experience. And uh, I think the fact that there have been previous questions about the Governor-General's judgment, it's amplified the concerns about his judgment in this case. Yeah, one of the, um, one of the former ministers uh, affected by all of this did put it to me when I was asking about the, the role of a Governor-General and the, the argument was, yeah, he should have pushed back. A, a, a Governor-General who came from a legal background, like one of the former High Court judges who often find themselves <laughs> in that role, would have pushed back more. Um, but, you know, maybe David Hurley's background in defence, um, you know, didn't equip him to push back. Worth noting, though, that a lot of what you've laid out there and whether he should have put this in the public diary, whether this should have been in the Gazette, whether some way this should have been publicised, is all convention. It's not actually laid down in law. And that's part of the problem here and part of the gap that may need to be filled. I would note just quickly on the Governor-General, the, the current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has been loath to criticise him this week in all of this. And I think whatever inquiry they may um, proceed with, I, I think he'd be pretty wary about anything that's going to um, rope in an investigation into the Governor-General's role here. I just think he'll be pretty careful not to put him in a in an even more awkward position uh, than, he's, than he's currently in. And on that, David, I, I think it's it's worth noting Chris Bowland uh, this week, I think, gave us a good reminder of perhaps why the Labor Party wasn't going to go hard here. Uh, he did point out uh, the history of the Labor Party being on the wrong side of a Governor-General 
going beyond their bounds. This is a very contested area, but he did point to, to Labor's history and how that uh, is perhaps informing their position now. I think the Governor-General was in a very difficult position because he is obliged to accept the advice of his First Minister, and he accepted that advice. That is his constitutional obligation, and as a Labor Member of Parliament, I would not like to see that, that convention that the Governor-General accepts the advice of the elected government uh, in any way endangered. It was endangered once before, about 50 years ago, and I wouldn't like to see it happen again. And, and Mel, just on the, the way this could have been made public through the Government Gazette, uh, we should just note what that is, because I think it's a very fair point. Uh, it normally lists uh, things like decisions on ministerial appointments, legislation being passed. It's a basic record, essentially, of, um, of what the Executive Council uh, decides. Yeah, there's a lot of things that the federal government does that doesn't require, say, the passage of legislation through parliament. They're decisions and regulations that the executive government can make, and this is effectively a record. The Gazette is a record-keeping process of that. So as you can imagine, there's now a lot of trawling through the Gazette to see if uh, there might have been other actions taken or, or things done under unusual arrangements. I think the Gazette is probably being more viewed in the last week than it has potentially been in the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just ask a couple other questions. I'll put to, to you guys a couple other questions we got here. Sean asks, how many journalists knew about the multiple ministries and sat on it? A similar question from Florence. Uh, the former PM's confirmed at least two journalists knew about the secret ministerial appointments as they happened. Begs the question, do journalists owe a debt of loyalty to the general population? And if they don't, is the term fourth estate meaningless? And Denise, I'd like to know why the authors of the book didn't reveal this. Obviously, they want to sell their book, but I believe it's very problematic. Look, this theme's come through a lot this week as well. The two journalists who work for the Australian newspaper, Simon Benson and Jeff Chambers, wrote this book in which it was revealed that Scott Morrison had assumed those responsibilities in health and finance. They didn't know about the others. It was Samantha Maiden who then reported it was also resources, and that was more problematic because of the decision on PEP 11. And then we found out from Anthony Albanese after they had a good look around that it was two more, um, uh, the Treasury and Home Affairs roles. For these two journalists, though, um, Beck, what, what do you think here? It's a little vexed, right, when you write a book as a journalist or, or do a documentary or something long form, you do often sit on information for that documentary, that book, whatever it is, for some time. I guess it's a bit of an ethical question, though, isn't it? If, if you find out something that voters really should know about, um, do you put that out there immediately also would depend, I suppose, on what agreements or undertakings you've given um, you know, during the process, talking to sources about when you will publish. W what do you think about this? Mm. I think it does come back to trust being a problem for both politicians and the media. I think mm. we have all come out slightly damaged by this process, rightly or wrongly. Um, but I think it's uh, it's a fair thing for people to go, well, if you knew and if it had consequences, if you, if the media is going to be sort of, um, you know, responding so strongly to this, it should have come out. A couple of people said to me, oh, Beck, you should have looked back to, you know, sort of Queensland political form. Remember Russ Hins? He was the minister for everything under mm. Sir Joe Bjorki-Peterson. <laughs> a lot of people reflecting back on that. But um, I don't know. If you're sitting on a piece of information and it doesn't have immediate consequences. I mean, I guess if, if they found out before the election, maybe it would have had an impact there. You could make that argument, but it's all become slightly hypothetical. But I think the bottom line is trust in the media and trust in politics has been damaged by this. So we found out 
from Scott Morrison that uh, the reporters discovered this information in what he described as contemporaneous interviews. So that they did know before the election. But I think part of the problem here is this really unfolded over the course of the week. And the initial revelation that, that the Australian reporters had, that he had uh, you know, co-signed on during the health pandemic out of grave concerns about the unknown facing us, that didn't really seem to make the public angry or frustrated mm. it seemed like an extraordinary move. It was really Samantha Maiden's revelation that came later that he not only mm. signed himself in as resources minister but actually used that power. That's when it really blew up. And uh, I think we can safely say Samantha Maiden didn't sit on that information for a long time. She published it as no. soon as she knew it. And a lot of the yeah. anger is around that process. I'm not sure I could sit on a, a good bit of a story for two years. I'd probably be too much of a blabbermouth to hold a secret for that long. But I think we also need to remember that this this wasn't a story that all happened at once and, uh, and two reporters sat on all of this information for two years and then revealed it. They had a nugget of information and the publishing of that nugget of information led to more digging by other journalists, which led to the clear example of that power not just being adopted but being used, and that was reported straight away. I'm going to squeeze in one more question here, but Beck, I'm going to let you go because we don't want to leave John Howard waiting uh, for you. I thank you very much okay. for joining us and answering these questions. We'll catch up with you soon. Thank you, David. Thank you, Mel. Cheers. And Mel. I'm going to ask you one more uh, question here, uh, and I'll have a stab at it as well. It's from Jeff, and this goes to the National Party, really. Um, it's uh, Jeff says, a good question to ask Michael McCormack, who was Deputy Prime Minister at the time. What did he know about the Prime Minister and the ministerial appointments? Now, I reckon this is, is, is fascinating, um, also because... Uh, I'm interviewing Barnaby Joyce uh, on Sunday morning for Insiders as well, so I've been digging around in this space too. So the timeline here, just before we get into what they knew and didn't know, um, Scott Morrison signed himself in as Resources Minister uh, alongside Keith Pitt from the National Party uh, in April of last year. And then uh, June is when Michael McCormack gets rolled by Barnaby Joyce, right? So at the time, Michael McCormack was the leader of the Nationals. My understanding is both he and Keith Pitt were told by Scott Morrison uh, that this was happening, that he was signing in as Resources Minister. I'm a little unclear as to what reasons he gave at the time. But then in June, Barnaby Joyce takes over as leader. My understanding is that he was also... Um, well, in fact, he's, he's said so publicly that he, he was aware of this arrangement but what we don't know, Mel, is you know how the Nats really felt about it. I have a pretty good idea how Keith Pitt felt about it, but um, <laughs> what, what sort of pushback was there? But I mean, just to lay it out, what Pep Eleven is? This is a, a, a gas potential gas project off the east coast, so it's about what fifty k's offshore from Sydney Central Coast and up to Newcastle. So it's a really big deal in a lot of those Liberal-held seats uh, that the Teal Independents were contesting, and up in the Central Coast as well. And Scott Morrison had made it pretty clear. I mean, he knew the politics of this in those very marginal Liberal-held seats. He'd made it clear both before and after he became secretly the Resources Minister that he didn't like the project, that he was opposed to the project. But we didn't know that he was ultimately the decision-maker as the minister on this, because that power rests specifically with the minister. We all thought it was Keith Pitt. Uh, he did drop some hints, if you go back over his language, about making the decision as prime minister. But in a legal sense, it is the resources minister who has the final call. And we all thought that was Keith Pitt. We didn't know it was actually Scott Morrison as well overriding him. Now, for the Nats, well, the Nationals, you know, they, they've long supported um, gas. 
uh, uh, you know, as, as an energy source, as a, um, a feedstock as well. And this gas-led recovery was what they kept talking about. And yet here they've effectively handed over to Scott Morrison so that these Liberal seats could be saved, a decision on this gas project. I know other National Party MPs uh, are, are pretty outraged that this happened at all because that relationship between the Libs and the Nats can get a little testy when it comes down to who's got what job. That's right, and it's very carefully negotiated. Whenever the leadership of either the Liberal Party or the National Party changes, they the two leaders come together and they negotiate what's known as the coalition agreement. And that divvies up how many ministerial portfolios the Nationals get, for example. And we've heard Bridget McKenzie describe her concern that uh, in taking power in this portfolio, it effectively undercut the coalition agreement. My concern as leader of the Nationals in the Senate is that these arrangements essentially breached the coalition agreement. I mean, it showed complete disrespect for the second party of government, that's the National Party, by essentially removing the authority of one of those ministers and and giving it to a Liberal minister without that minister's knowledge. you know, essentially breached the coalition agreement. And I think this is going to be questions that uh, Barnaby Joyce might need to face about uh, whether he considered that a breach of the coalition agreement. Is it the sort of action that would cause him to walk away? Is it that that the exercise of the power that came just before the election, so close to the election, that the imperative of trying to win that contest was more important than a a breach of a a coalition agreement? Mm -hmm. Or were the... If if the Liberals had made it clear that they were going to make this decision on PEP 11 come hell or high water and and they weren't going to be changed, was it better to have the Prime Minister announcing it so that the Nationals could maintain their position in support of such resources projects? There is so much we don't know in what happened in these conversations. That's all fertile ground for me to explore with Barnaby Joyce on Sunday, (laughs) and I will be. Um, You know, had we known at the time that was what was going on, it would have... Yeah, well, I I suspect things would have really blown up between the Liberals and the Nationals if this had been made public for all to know. The fact that it was kept secret, as as you indicate there, Mel, kept a lid on things to a degree uh, in what otherwise would have been a pretty explosive um, issue leading up to the election for the coalition. But uh, anyway, we'll try and unpack more of that with Barnaby Joyce and in the days and weeks ahead. Good um, luck. Mel, Good well, luck. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Great to talk to you. Thanks for walking us through the um, the ins and outs of what's a pretty extraordinary story. We'll catch up soon. Thank you. And thanks to our producers, Matt Bevan and Robin Powell. Thank you for all of those great questions this week. Keep them coming. Send your questions via the ABC Listen app, or you can send them via email. And the email address is backtoyoupodcast at abc.net.au. That's backtoyoupodcast at abc.net.au. We'll be back in your feed next Friday. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.